morning, Mosaic Church. Wow, I love what Eric was saying uh, this morning. It reminded me of something that Zach, uh, uh, one of our other worship leaders, was telling me is that sometimes because the way that we encounter the Bible, it's written words, sometimes we can miss the one who is speaking the words as we read them. Like we can consider it an intellectual exercise. And because we're not hearing the words coming from the mouth of the person who's speaking them to us, it can be easy for us to miss it. And today we need that more than ever. We need that more than ever. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to do, a lot of pre-work we're going to do before we get into the passage of Scripture so that we can hear God's heart and God's voice as his word is being spoken to us. And so I, I did something. I wrote a letter. When's the last time anyone wrote a letter in here? It, it, it's pretty rare, right? We, we don't write letters very more. Uh, very more? What does that even mean? We just, we rarely write letters. So I wrote a letter to my friend and pastor, Joel Kaufman, and I want to read it to you. I've got it, I've got it uh, up here. I've got a slide for you so you can read it along with me. Um, but it's just a letter that I wrote to Joel, and here's how it goes. It says, Joel, I had a few thoughts at any time this morning in regards to our marathon this past Thursday. I'm not sure how far y'all went on without me. Some of this may sound like freezers in the back of Target, and I don't want to end up on the quote page. I like where the structure's going. Just be mindful of how much food is on your plate. I hope you didn't flush out all the good stuff in my absence. I'm having second thoughts about KD. Don't pull the trigger. I'm not sure we're on the same page. Why am I worried? You taught me everything I know. I'm thankful to be your partner in crime. Who knew bears and Seminoles could get along so well? Give my regards to Captain Hooks, colon, hyphen, bracket. Now, here's the thing. I'm guessing that for most of you, in fact, I am, I am guessing for every single person in this room besides myself and Joel, you're pretty confused by what I wrote here. And it's because Joel and I have 10 plus years of friendship that we're, you know, that, that we're writing this letter on. We have a lot of shared experience. We have a lot of stories together. We have a shared friendship language together, Right? It's just the way that friendship works. When you get to know someone over time, you begin to be able to think like they think and talk like they talk. Joel and I could easily finish each other's sentences. No, no, we do not. We do not eat after one another. We do not, Joel. Stop it. Now, here's the deal. Let me tell you what. I guarantee this is Joel seeing this for the very first time. I guarantee I wouldn't have to explain one thing to Joel. I guarantee every single thing in this letter would make complete sense to him. Let's just go over a few of these things. I had a few thoughts at any time this morning. Now, is this me having bad grammar? See, Joel would know that it was, I was at any time fitness. I was exercising. And when I exercise, I start having thoughts. And then I start sending out texts because I'm listening to the scripture in my head as all good Christians do. And that's what I had these thoughts. And so I started writing Joel this letter while I was at Anytime Fitness, which is exactly what happened. And it was in regards to our marathon this past Thursday. Now, if you know me very well, you know I was not trying to run 26.2 miles. That's just not something I do. I don't do that. That's not how I work, right? This is not about that. We had an all-day meeting on Thursday. And so that's what I'm referring to. 
Uh, I'm not sure how far y'all went on without me. I left 30 minutes early and maybe they talked about really important stuff when I left. Some of this may sound like freezers in the back of Target. Anyone else know what freezers in the back of Target sound like? You guys know what those sound like? See, because I left early, I know that there are things that I don't know about from the conversation. And so the things that I'm about to write to him could be a moot point, right? It, it, it might not matter anymore. Freezer's back at Target. One time, Joel and I had an argument uh, on Black Friday, standing in line for Target about whether there are freezers in the back of Target. And, and one of us was adamant that there are freezers in the back of Target. And the other one was like, there may be, but you just don't know. You do not know. <laughs> you don't know. You've never been in the back of Target. You don't know. So it's a, it's a phrase that we use periodically. And it makes sense to Joel, but it doesn't make sense to anyone else unless it's explained. Just be mindful how much food is on your plate. I hope you don't flush out all the good stuff in my absence. Am I talking about what he's eating and then what's happening after he's eating? No, I'm talking about his capacity. I'm talking about all the things that he's taking on. And the way that most people would use that phrase is they would say, flesh out all of the stuff. But we have a good friend that says flush out. And so a lot of times Joel and I will say it incorrectly on purpose. I'm having second thoughts about KD. Don't pull the trigger. I'm thankful to be your partner in crime. Are we planning on committing a murder? Are we planning on shooting someone? I mean, we've got an elder named Kevin Dennis. We've got a staff member named Kevin Dunn. Like, what's going on here? Or maybe, are we talking about a kids director position? Who knows? Joel would know exactly what I'm talking about, but unless y'all are filled in, it doesn't make sense. Send my regards to Captain Hooks. You, some of you may know, some of you may not know. Renault used to have this incredible gesture when he preached. He would have these double hooks and he would use them constantly. But we, you know, in love and respect, made fun of him enough that he doesn't do it anymore, which I'm, I'm sad about. I'm sad about. Honestly, I'm sad about. I wish, he would, I wish he would do it more. And then colon hyphen bracket. What is that? It's a smiley face. Now, all of you guys know it's a smiley face, but just imagine for one second that someone 2,000 years from now is reading this letter. Is that gonna immediately come to their mind? I don't know. See, we use emojis all the time. In fact, in fact, emojis have really taken the place of this would have been AOL Instant Messenger. That's, that's where this came from, right? This is, that's, that's, that's where I grew up on learning about how to do uh, faces with um, grammar. Like, but who knows what they'd think? Now, Joel knows what I'm saying because Joel knows my heart right? He could hear this coming out of my mouth. He could hear this from my own voice. He knows, but we don't. Now think about the Bible for a second. Okay, we stand 2,000 years removed from the Bible. We have a completely different culture, completely different language, different worldview than the people who were writing the scriptures had. And so there's a lot of work that we have to do if we want to accurately interpret the scriptures 2,000 years later. I mean, think about this just for a second. Think about this. Some questions that we might have if we didn't do this. Are we being disobedient at Mosaic because when we come here together, we don't kiss each other? There's a command out of uh, 2 Corinthians that we should kiss each other. We should greet each other with a holy kiss. So are we being disobedient? Or without any context, without any work done, we might think so. 
Should we have a line item in our budget for tattoo removal, right? For any staff member that might have a tattoo, whether they were covered up today with long sleeves or not, like, like should we be removing those? In Leviticus, it says you're not supposed to get tattoos. Does that still apply? How do we know? Should we be pausing before we pray corporately so women can all put on a hat and women can take off their hats? Right, First Corinthians, Paul talks about this, praying with your head covered or praying with it out, or not, with it not covered. What, what are we supposed to do with these kind of things? Should Christians drink alcohol when they're sick to their stomach? Paul actually says this in this letter that we're reading, 1 Timothy to Timothy. Right, there's work that needs to be done so that we can accurately interpret the scriptures and not miss God as we read them, not miss his heart. We've got to remember, especially in the New Testament letters that we were reading someone else's mail. Ever thought about that? We are reading someone else's mail. It's like we're overhearing one side of a phone conversation and we've got to figure out what's going on in that situation. Have you ever been in a scenario where you overheard a phone conversation and you completely misunderstood what was going on? Uh, my wife had I Love Lucy on the other day and this was an instance in the show where Lucy was overhearing Ricky on the phone. She was nervous about their marriage and he, he was talking about a girl he was gonna get rid of from his show and she thinks he's gonna, he's gonna get rid of her. So she gets nervous that he's gonna kill her. Like, I mean, like this is what happens and we've gotta understand as we come to the Bible, especially the New Testament letters, we're reading someone else's mail. And so we've gotta do it faithfully We've got to do it carefully and we've got to look at the context. So we need to know about the author. We need to know about the recipient. We need to know about the situation that is being talked about. So let's look at this. First of all, who's writing this letter? First Timothy, Paul. And Paul is an early church planting missionary. And he is what we would call a Hebrew Bible nerd. I don't know what level of nerdom we have in here. I'm sure we each nerd out on a different aspect of life, a different bit of knowledge. Paul was a Hebrew Bible nerd. In fact, his Hebrew Bible nerddom outshined any of ours here today. He, it was what he breathed. It was the way that he thought. And you see it come out all the time. Uh, Paul was, uh, he, he had a, a wealth of knowledge that we don't have. Right? So we have to make up the difference. He had a radically different worldview than most modern people have. That's Paul. That's, that's the writer. What about Timothy? Timothy is the recipient. And let me tell you, if you've ever met anyone who's all in on anything, it's nothing compared to Timothy. Let me just tell you one example of how we know that Timothy was all in. When he was a young adult, he allowed Paul to circumcise him. We know that at that point, Timothy's going to read every book that Paul asked him to read. He's going to have every conversation Paul asked him to have. He's going to do anything Paul would tell him to do, right? Timothy's all in. He's been with Paul for over 10 years. They have a close relationship of more than 10 years. So they've got a shared friendship language shorthand, Timothy and Paul. And Timothy has been left behind in Ephesus to confront some false teachers, Right? This letter is intended to help Timothy shape the church of Ephesus, which was a very important city in that day and age, which was a very important church in regards to Christianity because they were ascending church. They were planting churches out of the church of Ephesus. And now there are false teachers that have arisen in this church that are causing a lot of problems. And so Paul tells Timothy, go confront these teachers. Now, chapter one of Timothy is about 
Paul's commission to Timothy to confront these teachers. And I've got a slide for us so we can kind of see what has been going on in chapter one, just in case any of us have missed it. Paul says this, the aim of the church is Jesus' love. That Greek word we talked about a lot, it's telos. The created end for the church is Jesus' love or agape. Giving of yourself sacrificially for the good of the other and embracing God's truth. That's agape, Jesus' love. And then he tells Timothy, it's important that we handle the Bible biblically, that we utilize the scriptures scripturally. And that's what the false teachers are not doing. They're utilizing the scriptures, but they're doing it in a way that the scriptures tell you not to do it. And then he says, hey, just remember the gospel, when you're handling the scriptures accurately, it brings out the beauty of the gospel, which reveals that God uses and wants and chooses the worst of the worst. It includes the worst of the worst who Paul says, that's me, I'm the worst of the worst. So praise King Jesus for even letting someone like me be a part of his family. That's chapter one. This is the commission Paul gives to Timothy to confront the false teachers. As we move to chapter two, we begin to see some of the symptoms that are going on because of the false teachers. And Paul begins to address some of the disciples of the false teachers. Last week, we began to look at the holistic picture that Paul begins to paint before he jumps into the specific instances. And he says, I want you to love everyone. And I want you to do that by praying for people and begin with your enemies. Begin with the people who have made themselves your enemies. And I want you not just to pray for them, but I also want you to, 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 to use three different words, right? He says supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Supplications are bring them up in your prayers. As you're talking to God, talk about the people and the situations that you're experiencing, but don't just talk about them intercede for them, be on their team, be their biggest supporter, pray for their good and for their blessing. And then lastly, thanksgivings. Thank God for these people, even the people who have made themselves your enemies. This is how I want you to reflect the heart of God for people. And then he begins to jump in to some of these specific instances where these disciples of these false teachers were getting some things wrong and hurting the church. Now, we've got to understand the false teachers before we jump into this. So I've got another slide for us about the false teachers. So we've got these false teachers and we want to know what was their motivation. And we see it in the scriptures. Paul writes about it. They wanted attention. So they were prideful and they wanted financial gain. So they were greedy, right? This was their motivation. If any actors in here are like, what's my motivation? This was their motivation. If you were playing the false teachers, you would, you would have a lot of pride. You have a lot of greed. You would want attention from people. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Like you're, I don't know, on stage with a microphone, getting you know, a bunch of people to look at you, right? They wanted attention and they wanted financial gain. So they were targeting a specific group of people because of their motivation. They were targeting uneducated, impressionable, wealthy people. That's what you're gonna do. If you want to have financial gain, you're gonna target people who will give money to you. So uneducated, impressionable, wealthy people. And the way that they were doing this is they were tailoring their message to suit what the disciples would want to hear, right? To, he would, you would tell them what they wanna hear so that they will follow you, be impressed by you and give you money. And so Paul says they're making speculations about the early chapters of Genesis. In uh, chapter one, he said they were, they were spending their time in the early part of the Torah where there is genealogy and myth. 
Now, when Paul says myth, he's not talking about make-believe. He's talking about a style of writing. And the style of writing myth is utilized a lot in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So these false teachers were spending time in Genesis 1 through 11, and they were coming up with new things, things that they had never heard before, which made them sound impressive, which made them sound like they were seeing things that no one else could see, which we'll talk about in a second, but that's a sure sign someone is speaking heresy. And so then Paul begins to dive in to their men, the, the people they're mentoring. Now, one thing that is so important as we jump into this is to understand the relationship of truth and culture when it comes to biblical interpretation. What do I mean by that? The relationship between truth and culture when it comes to biblical interpretation. I've got a slide that shows us the way that we typically think about culture and truth. Typically, we think of them on opposite sides of the spectrum, that we've got culture over here and we've got truth over here, and they look completely opposite. And if that is the case, then the way that we can identify truth is just getting as far from culture as we possibly can, right? That makes sense. And then in turn, as we look more and more like culture, we must be less and less like truth, right? And what that can breed oftentimes is a fear of culture. We fear culture, so we want to stay away from it because we're afraid we might become like culture. Or we fear our culture and we're afraid that we're going to be irrelevant and we won't be able to be evangelistic. And so we actually move towards culture, right? But I don't think that's the most helpful way to think about truth and culture. I think this next slide is a better way to picture it. We've got truth in the middle. And it is big and is bold and it does not move. God's truth never changes because God never changes. But culture, culture changes all the time, right? It moves and shapes and morphs. In any different aspect of culture, it's always changing. Our culture is different from other cultures in the world today. And our culture is different from what our culture was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, right? Things change. And so throughout time, culture has looked more and less like truth. It has been further and closer to truth. And so if the way that we're trying to determine truth is culture, we're going to miss it oftentimes. What we need to do is let's set aside culture for a second and instead let's focus in on the scriptures. And the way that we're called to study the scriptures or to handle the scriptures scripturally, as Paul says, or handle the Bible biblically, is that we would interpret the scriptures, one, prayerfully, Because Jesus said it's the Spirit of God who's going to lead us into all truth and remind us of the things that Jesus said. We study them prayerfully, but we don't just study them on our own. We study them within community, with fellow believers who have the Spirit of God inside of them. But we don't just study the Scriptures prayerfully in the community here today. We study it with the community, the Christian community worldwide. And we study it with the Christian community historically. Right, We want to make sure that we are saying the things that God has spoken through Christians throughout history. My brother has this great quote, and I love it. He says, orthodoxy is plagiarism. If you're saying something new, that's heresy. And what he means by that, orthodoxy is right belief. Right belief is plagiarism. It's saying what God has said through wise men and women who followed Jesus throughout the ages. 
right? We know right belief if we're saying the same things the great men and women of the faith have said for generations on generations. If we come up with something new, if someone here on stage says something that no one has ever said before, you need to be nervous. You need to be nervous because it's likely that is heresy. And this is what the false teachers were doing. They were coming up with new ideas about the early chapters of Genesis in ways that would suit the ears of their hearers and make them follow them, make them give them money. Now, with all of that in mind, let's go to 1 Timothy. Grab your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter two. If you've got your journal, grab that and take some notes on that. 1 Timothy chapter two, and we're going to start in verse eight. And in verse eight, Paul begins to address the men. And he says this, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the first thing we have to understand is Paul's addressing a specific group of men here. There, and, and it seems like, it sounds like these are the disciples of the false teachers. He's addressing a group of men who are disciples of the false teachers who are using their speculation, these new things they've come up with in the early chapters of Genesis and causing quarrels and divisions. In the letter of 2 Timothy, which Paul writes to Timothy later on, Paul calls this wrangling about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. He calls this foolish speculation, foolish and ignorant speculation. He says, be careful about that kind of stuff. Instead of doing this and arguing with one another and dividing the church, he said, pray. And in the context of the prayer we talked about last week, pray about them, pray for them and thank God for them, right? As you begin to pray for people, your heart and your mind and your perspective for other people changes. Pray for them. Paul says, use the principle of love, the created end for which God formed the church. Love people like Jesus loves people. And I think a principle that we can take from this, right? Because this is written to a specific group of people. The principle that we can take and apply today is this. Love people through prayer rather than divide over speculation. Love people through prayer rather than divide over speculation. Care about the other person more than convincing them of your position. That should hurt some of us in here, right? We exist in an incredible church that cares about truth. Amen? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. But what can happen oftentimes when we are super passionate about truth, we can become more passionate about our position on truth than the other person we're having a conversation with. And oftentimes we can hurt them with our words. And rather than try and demonstrate Jesus in the way that we have conversations, we just want to convince them and get them over to our side. And, and I know that y'all experience this, I don't, but sometimes you're wrong, right? Well, one time I was wrong because I thought I was wrong and I wasn't wrong. So I was wrong about being wrong. But, but other than that, like, like I can't relate. No, I'm wrong all the time, Right? So Paul says, rather than divide over speculation, love people through prayer. And then he goes on. First Timothy chapter two, verse nine. Likewise, now this is hugely important. Likewise, this word connects these two thoughts. Just like the men were dividing. Now we're gonna see the women dividing over different things. Paul says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel 
with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, what is Paul not saying here? Well, we know that Paul is not talking about women wearing leggings to church, right? We know that because yoga pants were invented till the 1960s or the 80s or the 90s, depending on who you ask. It's a little bit convoluted when you do the research. I know that Lululemon made their first pair of yoga pants in 1998. <laughs> Paul's not talking about that. What is Paul talking about? Right? Paul, here in the context, is talking about a particular group of wealthy women. And we know that it's wealthy women because of the way that they're dressing. It's a group of wealthy women who are beginning to emulate the character of their mentors who are the false teachers. What do the false teachers want? Attention and money, right? Attention and money. So now these women, this particular group of women, the disciples of the false teachers, they are trying to get attention through their display of their wealth. And it's causing division within the church because it's putting to shame the poor people, the people who don't have the means that they have. And Paul says this, and this is the principle that we can take from this. Paul says, dress with love in mind. Dress with the other person's good in mind. When you're thinking about how you uh, present yourself, when you're thinking about what you wear, don't just think about how good you look. Don't just think about how impressive you might look. Think about how is, how is the way I present myself gonna affect other people? And how can I dress for the good of the other person? How can I dress in a way that helps them walk into holiness, walk into maturity? See, Paul is one of those people who says, view every aspect of your life through the lens of love. And everything you do, everything you say, everything you wear, you should do it with the lens of, I've been given the opportunity to display the radical love of Jesus. How can I do, do that with how I dress? How can I bless and encourage and strengthen and help people into holiness and maturity with the way that I dress? Hey, this was a particular group of women, but we can look at it for all of us and say, as we dress, as we present ourselves, how can we do it with the lens of love? How can we think about others more than ourselves when we're getting dressed? How can we view every aspect of our life through the lens of love that displays the incredible heart of God. What an amazing opportunity we have. Now, as we get into this next verse, I just want to warn you, if you've never read this before, it's possible it will be very offensive to you. If you've read it before and you've heard someone use it poorly, you may have some baggage with this. Bear with me. I guarantee this displays the heart of God beautifully, but it's just going to take some effort. First Timothy chapter two, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let me tell you, when I was in college, I used this verse poorly. And, and there was a girl that I was dating. We talked about getting married and I broke up with her over this verse. I did. Um, I mean, although I don't think that situation was great. I, I'm, I'm thankful because I, I married my wife, uh, Jennifer. But 
That's what I did. And what I said to her is things like, come on, what's the plain reading of the text? What's the simplest explanation? What is it at face value? Now, these phrases are not bad phrases. If you've used them before, what's the plain reading of the text? It's not a bad thing. It's good to ask that question, what's the plain reading? The question we should be asking though is the plain reading to whom? Is it the plain reading to me? Is it the plain reading to you? 2,000 years removed with a language and culture barrier? Or is it the plain reading of the text to Timothy? Remember the letter I wrote to Joel. If you wanted to understand accurately what I was saying to Joel, who would you want to ask what it means? Some random person who doesn't know Joel or I, or would you want to know, ask Joel? Would you want to ask me? Would you want to ask someone who knows my heart, who knows my history, who knows my knowledge base, who knows Joel's heart, who knows Joel's history, who knows his knowledge base? That's who we should be asking. So we should be asking, what is the plain reading of the text of Timothy? What would Timothy have heard in this scripture? And let me tell you, Timothy would not have heard women cannot lead, women cannot teach, and women must all be silent in a church setting. He wouldn't have heard that. Which would sound really odd to us because it sounds like that's exactly what Paul is saying. I mean, it, it, I mean, to me, it was like, you can't get any more plain than that. The plain reading of the text says you got to be silent in church. And we got women singing in church. Like, what are y'all doing? Right? We, have, we have women who, who, who say stuff with a microphone here on stage. What are we doing? Let's look at why Timothy would not have heard this. So the first thing we need to look at is the context of the entirety of the scriptures. See, when you're interpreting any passage of scripture, you need to know where does this fit in the entirety of what the scriptures teach about this subject, especially, particularly when there's a confusing passage of scripture. So what does the Bible say throughout its, uh, the course of it from Genesis to Revelation about women leading? Well, I've got a slide that shows us about this. This is just a smattering of women that we have that God favored, valued, and put in positions of leadership. The first one we've got is Eve. Genesis 1.28, God tells both Adam and Eve together to rule the earth. That both of them, Adam and Eve, were given the commission to rule the earth. That we were created to rule together, to complement one another in our differences and rule together. Miriam, this was Moses' sister. She was called a prophetess or a female prophet. Deborah was called a female prophet and she was given the position of judge, which puts her in the same, you know, you know categories, uh, Samuel, as Jephthah, as Ehud, as Gideon. And she was one of the better prophets, uh, better judges. Huldah, this is a woman when the king was given the book of the law, and it had been hidden for a long time or it had been undiscovered for a while or unread for a long time, he and his advisors commissioned Hulda to read it and to interpret it and tell them what it meant rather than Jeremiah or Zephaniah who were both alive at the time. They could have sent this book of the law to Jeremiah or to Zephaniah to tell them what it meant, but they didn't. They commissioned Hulda instead. Mary, 
Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus, that's actually a phrase that was used in the first century for Jewish rabbis to talk about their disciples. And Jesus blessed Mary and encouraged her for sitting at his feet as a disciple. You've got Mary Magdalene. She was the first one to the tomb and she was the one who Jesus appeared to first and commissioned to go preach the good news of his resurrection to his disciples. You've got Joanne and Susanna. These are two women who supported Jesus's ministry financially and traveled with him and the group of his disciples. Lydia, she was a businesswoman in Philippi who housed the church of Philippi in her home. Junia, in, in the letter to Romans chapter 16, she is either referred to as someone who is held high in high esteem by the apostles, or perhaps, depending on how you translate the word, it's kind of difficult. She was referred to as an apostle. It's hard, it's very difficult to translate. But the point is, is she is someone who was elevated, who was looked upon highly as a leader in the early church, Priscilla. This one I love. The first time you see Priscilla and her husband Aquila, he is introduced first, which is the way you would always do it in the first century when you're writing. You would always introduce the husband first. In that society, in that patriarchal society, that's the way you would do it. And so it's Aquila and Priscilla. But then when it comes to ministry, Priscilla is always introduced first after that. When they're talking about discipling Apollos, when Paul is uh, encouraging them in their leadership in the church of Rome. And then you've got Phoebe. Phoebe was a deacon who carried the letter of Rome, uh, Romans to the church of Rome. And the way that it would have worked, the best that we can understand is the person who carried it would have been the person who explained it to the people because they would have been the person who would have had the conversation with Paul. And then when they went to the church who had not had that conversation with Paul and they had questions about the letter, they would be the person that had more information to fill them in on anything they had questions about. What we see throughout the entirety of the scriptures, Old Testament, Jesus, Paul, they all valued and elevated women. Women led in the early church. And this was a good thing. So if, if Paul is saying this, Timothy would be shocked because it wouldn't fit the context of what he knows about the entirety of the scriptures and what, what he knows about Paul. And this is just a, you know, a few. Like we could talk about Esther. We could have talked about Ruth. We could have talked about the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, what about when Paul goes into the example of Adam and Eve? This to me seems pretty clear that Paul is saying Adam was born first. So he was therefore favored and put in a position of authority over Eve. Now for Paul to say that, he, he could say that, but he wouldn't use this example of birth order. Let me tell you why. See, this makes total sense, birth order to us. It makes sense. It seems like the way. But if you look at the context of the book of Genesis, one of the most glaring themes that you can see throughout the entirety of the book of Genesis is that oftentimes God favors and chooses the later born to be an authority over the earlier born. Okay, I've got a slide about this. We've got, yeah, you're welcome. This, is, this has been brought to you by Photoshop. <laughs> Subscribe. Humans over animals, right? Humans were born after animals and they were put in authority over animals. Humans were born after angels, Genesis chapter one, and they were put in authority over the angels. Uh, Abel was born after Cain and he was favored over Cain. Isaac was born after Ishmael and he was favored and chosen to be the, the carrier of the promised seed over Ishmael. Jacob was born after Esau and he was 
favored and had the blessing and, and was, uh, the people of God were named after his new name, Israel. Joseph was born after his brothers and he was favored by his father. Ephraim was born after Manasseh, uh, Joseph's two kids, and he was favored and given the devil portion of blessing over Manasseh. Judah was born after Reuben and Judah was instructed to be the ruler over his brothers, even over his three older brothers. And this is the line and lineage of Jesus. One of the most clear things as you study the book of Genesis is that God often, in fact, in every single generation of Abraham's family in the book of Genesis, the later born is favored over the earlier born. So, so Timothy, if this is what Paul is saying, Timothy would be like, wait, this is new information. Why are you using Adam and Eve's birth order to talk about how women uh, shouldn't be talking in church? If you look at the context, Paul is doing two things here. And, and, it, and let me tell you, it becomes super clear. One thing he's doing is he has to correct the false teaching of the false teachers in the early chapters of Genesis. And secondly, because he's brilliant, he's led by the spirit of God, he's doing two things. He's using their false teaching as an example of what is going on in this particular situation. These false teachers were teaching heresy, new things about the early chapters of Genesis. For instance, in the case of Adam and Eve, there was an early pre-Gnostic heresy that said that Eve, when she took the fruit and ate it, did a good thing. And because she did this good thing and she was desiring wisdom, she was given special wisdom that she now passes on to all the women. And so women have a special wisdom over men. That's what was being taught. And these false teachers wanting to tickle the ears of impressionable, uneducated, wealthy women, telling them that you have a special wisdom over men. So even though you're uneducated, you should be a teacher, just like we are teachers. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. I need to correct the heresy and I'm gonna use it as an example. So Paul says, Adam was born first. If you look at the story of Adam and Eve, Adam is born first. And who is given the instruction by God? Who is educated by God? Adam, right? It's before Eve is separated out that God gives the instruction of what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. So Adam is the educated one. Eve would have been the one who wasn't educated by God. She would have had to have been educated by Adam. And then someone with an ulterior motive seeks to deceive her for his own personal gain. And, and Paul is saying, she then, having been deceived as an uneducated, impressionable woman, now makes a bad choice. Taking the fruit was a bad choice. Even though she wanted wisdom and wisdom is not a bad thing, she made a bad choice. And God did not impart special women to her, a special wisdom to her and all the women from here on out. I think the best way to understand what Paul is saying here to Timothy with the example in Genesis is this. Hey, Timothy, this group of women who are uneducated, who aren't taught in the scriptures, don't let them teach the scriptures. It's rocket science, right? People who are not educated in the scriptures should not teach the scriptures. But instead, and this is where it gets good, this is the beauty of God's heart bleeding through. Even in this command, 
He says, I want you to educate these women so that they can utilize the gifts and talents God has given them to build up the church in the way that God desires. It's beautiful. God says, I want to educate women because in that day and age, women weren't valued when it came to education. This is something that was countercultural in that space to value women and to educate them. Now there is a phrase that's really important as we talk about how we're gonna live out the practical implications of this at Mosaic Church. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now it can sound like that's two things, teach and exercise authority. The word there, it's a Greek word, it's ude, it's a conjunctive and standing in line with many, many different scholars throughout Christian history, it's actually a joining word that joins these two words into one idea, that it's to teach with a particular kind of authority. It's to teach with the authority of an elder. So the way that Mosaic is living this out, the way that the elders are choosing to live this out, to be faithful to the scriptures, is that in order to guard the gospel, authoritative teaching is reserved for those who hold the office of elder, those who have been educated, who have been tested, and who have been affirmed. There are times when non-elders, men and women can and should teach. But for the most part on Sunday mornings, you're gonna see elders teaching, right? Elders are gonna be the ones who are teaching. They've been trained, they've been tested, they've been affirmed, and we want to guard the gospel. And we want to make sure we're not doing what the false teachers are doing and coming up with new stuff and speculating in the areas where we are uneducated. Now we're gonna talk more about this next week when we talk about the authority of the church, uh, authority structure in the church. Uh, and so ask all of your questions to Renault next week. <laughs> Just don't call him Captain Hooks. Here's the principle that we take away from this passage. Those who aren't educated in the scriptures shouldn't teach them. Instead, they should be educated and then released to use the gifts and talents that they have. God is saying women can and should be educated because God values women. He loves women. We here at Mosaic have women lead. We here at Mosaic have women teach. Now this last verse, man, I tell you what, if, if, if it wasn't complicated enough already, if it wasn't confusing enough already, here we go. First Timothy chapter two, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Here's what Paul is definitely saying. He's saying, women, you need to have biological children. You can't be saved. No, that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that women are saved through having biological children. He's not saying women are justified by having biological children. He's not even saying that women are sanctified through having biological children. How do we know this? A couple reasons. One, Paul in many, many other places is super clear and says that we are saved by grace through faith in the work, the finished work of Jesus, right? All of us, guys, girls, children, everybody, right? All of us are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not what we do. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, he says this, I, I want to I read it for you. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. How can Paul tell people to remain single if the way that they're saved or sanctified is through bearing biological children? He can't do that. 
So this is not what Paul is saying. Look at the context. Once again, he's using Adam and Eve and, their, and, and the story that we have in Genesis chapter three to demonstrate what is good and beautiful for us moving forward, particularly for this group of women. He says, yet she, singular, will be saved through childbearing. Referring back to the promise God gave to Eve that through her seed, the Messiah will come or Jesus will come, Right? And then they, if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. Paul is talking about sanctification. Real quick, the word salvation is used in a, in a number of different ways in scripture. Past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. We've split it up um, to, to make it more clear. Past salvation is called justification. Present salvation is called sanctification, and that's your movement into maturity. And future salvation is called glorification. Paul here, I think, in context with everything else he writes, is talking about sanctification, present salvation, that we are made more like Jesus in the way that we two things. One, continue in holiness, faith, love with self-control. And also in the way that we participate in discipleship, right? He uses the seed of the woman in bearing children. And then he says, us continuing in faith, love, and holiness. He, there's another theme in Genesis that's super clear when you really study the book is that after this promise, different people are referred to as either aligning themselves with the seed of the woman or aligning themselves with the serpent. God says it's to Cain. There's a number of other people that this happens to. And I think what Paul is saying here is, one, Eve was saved through continuing to bear children so that the Messiah would come so that we could all be saved because all humans are saved through the Messiah. But we are sanctified as we continue in obedience to Jesus, but we're also sanctified as we continue to bear children, not biological children, but spiritual children as we continue to disciple people into allegiance to Jesus, the seed of the woman. See, when you look at the context, it becomes so much more clear and so much more beautiful because it actually sounds like it's coming out of the mouth of a God who loves all people, who created men and women equally and values men and women. In fact, he values them so much that he's even willing to correct both men and women. God created men and women to be equal, to fill the earth, and to do it, to rule together. And then after that, what's amazing is that in a patriarchal society, a society that excluded, overlooked, and even oppressed women, God continued to elevate women and to value them, even putting them in places of leadership. And then you see Jesus in a patriarchal society continuing to value and elevate women in a society that um, oppressed them, who pushed them down, who overlooked them. Jesus continued to speak value and life over them. And Paul did the same thing. He echoes the heartbeat of God and says, we should value women. We should educate women. We should allow women to utilize the gifts and talents that God has given them to build up the church in the way that God has designed it. We serve an incredible God. And when you see the context of everything that he says, you can begin to hear these words coming out of his mouth, displaying his heartbeat, his love for men and his love for women, his value of men and his value of women built to complement one another 
and to lead in that complimenting. God is incredible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need you. We need you. We need you. Thank you so much for for giving us your scriptures. God, thank you for giving us great men and women in the past who have done so much work into these scriptures so that we can stand on the shoulders of giants and accurately interpret what is being said that displays your heart. God, I pray for anyone who has been hurt by this passage of scripture before anyone who has not seen your heart reflected in it, I just pray that you would continue to work in their heart and their mind, that they would be able to see you shine boldly and beautifully, even through this passage of scripture. I pray you'd be with all of us, that we would be people who reflect your heart, that we would value men and we would value women, that we would see men and women as equals, as co-heirs with Jesus. And I pray that we would compliment one another in the way that you've created us to compliment one another and that we would lead together in the way that you've created us to lead together. That we'd serve one another, that we'd pray for one another, that we'd bless one another, encourage one another and be thankful for one another. Help us to reflect accurately your heart and display that for all the world to see. We need you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.